The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to SiriusXM's Cars and Culture. I'm your host, Jason Stein. His is the voice that has quickly emerged as one for a generation of car lovers. This is the new Ferrari Daytona SP3, and it's the coolest car Ferrari has made in years. And that is Doug DeMuro, a YouTube sensation who is every bit cars and culture. Not bad for a kid from Denver who once believed that his blogs and musings in print might work better in a video format before anybody knew about YouTube's video format. Not bad for a car-crazy kid who once worked at Porsche before realizing he could have an effect on every brand, not just one. And not bad for an internet sensation who would define a generation and make a mark on new ones. Kids who loved his unconventional, unpretentious reviews of cars, even when he was driving the most exotic cars on the planet. Doug DeMuro might be only our second YouTube influencer on this program, but he's leaving his influence everywhere. Now home to nearly 5 million YouTube subscribers and billions of views. Too many views to count, perhaps, and a following that has every automaker interested in his words, his unique touches, and his impact. And DeMuro is unique. This is the new Mercedes-AMG GT Black Series, and it's amazing, a true supercar. It has 720 horsepower, and it costs almost $400,000 with options. And today, I'm going to review it. He looks for the oddities in vehicles, the stuff that most people might miss, the stuff that makes him a trademark on the car review circuit. And now in the auction world, DeMuro now also runs the automobile selling website Cars and Bids, which allows individuals to purchase and sell vehicles in online auctions. He launched the business in 2020. He's a guy with a simple, effective style. American YouTuber, author, columnist, writer, and internet entrepreneur. And one unique perspective. All of this on Cars and Culture. Hi, I'm Doug DeMuro, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. I couldn't think of a perfect opening uh, that is any better than what Doug just did for this program. <laughs> Welcome in to Cars and Culture, Doug. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you being on the program. Uh, I, I want to just open with um, with an interesting stat. Uh, more than, uh, is it a billion and a half now, Doug, uh, viewers that you've had on the program? I think it's something like that. Yeah, the is last, it a trillion? It, it, no, a billion. No, God, no. Not a no, I think it's something like a billion and a half or a billion. I don't I don't look at the total number all that often, but it's something crazy like that. I It's hard to even imagine, hard to wrap my head around how many people. It must be hard to wrap your head around when you think that all you wanted to do was just start a, a vlog. Yeah. Right. Go back in the day. Take me back to the moment when you decided that, you know, what I'm doing is interesting, but what I want to do is probably in a different medium. And what am I going to do in that medium? 
Yeah, you know, so I was writing about cars on Jalopnik, which, you know, 10 years ago when I started all this was kind of like the premier car blog, basically. And I just and and actually I got an email from a viewer who suggested um, or an email from a reader at that time who suggested that I should consider uh, video. And I hadn't really thought about it. And so I started making videos and, and it was largely in vlog format. I would make like a weekly video about my car, whatever car I had that week or whatever. Um, you know, what happened that week, what road trip I went on, what problem I had, some of which were created for the purposes of making content. <laughs> and then, you know, then I started reviewing cars and that was the big change. I think that that happened in, in, uh, about three years later. And that was kind of the, the, the impetus for sort of the growth of the channel. Um, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of car review channels on YouTube back in 2015, 2016, there was some white space there. And as they say, and I was able to kind of fulfill it and and provide car reviews and i started doing these these varied car reviews so i would do new cars but also crazy old stuff like lamborghini countaches and bmw z8s and cars that people wanted to see from the old days and so it was a it was kind of something for everybody basically so amazing to think that youtube what you just said that youtube didn't have that many channels focused on automotive. I mean, specifically reviews. There were a lot of channels that were like stupid car trick kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> but car reviews, I think a lot of the serious publications that did car reviews didn't take YouTube all that seriously back then. And then some cha my channel and some other channels really started to grow and then they started to take YouTube more seriously, but by that time, you know, I was already off to the races and so were some other guys and it was difficult to catch up. Wow, it's amazing to think about it. It's it's actually, uh, uh, you know, the consideration of doing reviews online is now just a natural thing. Right. You you stepped into a Ferrari 360 as your first car, right? Yeah, my first car for my YouTube channel. And actually, it's kind of funny to think about it now because at in 2013, the simple act of having a Ferrari 360 was enough to get people to watch your videos, which is so stupid because today there are YouTube channels. <laughs> where the people have Bugattis and Koenigseggs and still nobody watches because we've all seen that stuff. But back 10 years ago, it was like, there's a guy on YouTube with a Ferrari, like, whoa, let's hear about <laughs> what he has to say. And of course now it seems so pedestrian, but at the time it really was an effective kind of launching point, which is just laughable by modern standards, basically. Well, it was interesting to people because you would say, what is it like to actually own a Ferrari? It was that the format was that simple, right? It really was. I, every week I would try to do something different. Like here's, you know, an actual Ferrari ownership experience. And I think, you know, 10 years, I think people forget about 20 years ago, there was a lot of mystery around exotic cars. You heard stories. Every, oh, you got to take the engine out to do an oil change. Like you hear those stories, right? In the pre-internet days, the early internet days, maybe the late nineties to the early 2010s, there was the, the, it was being demystified. And so I was kind of one of those people at the, from the beginning who was like, Hey, you know, here's what it's actually like. Your buddy, your buddy's buddy tells you that you got to, you know, that it, the tires cost 10 grand, but here's like what it actually is like. And I think there was, that was effective, at least, you know, at that time. When you were going to Emory and you were working for Porsche or even just starting out as an auto columnist, did you ever even consider the idea that an influencer could be a career? No, 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 God. No. I mean, it wasn't coined anyway, right? It was, no, and and I I remember I remember being at Emory and reading about how there were people making a lot of money on YouTube, and I was thinking to myself, 
oh, that's interesting. But like I was getting an economics degree and I, that was, it was never going to be me. Like that it literally was never a thought. My father's an attorney. I, I expected to work in an office my whole life. There was never even a, con a concept in my mind that I would go down this road. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's it, to this day, it's still surprising to me that like me, I don't feel like I'm as big, much of a fit for it as some of these other people who are maybe more of a, you know, like ready for the celebrity of it or like the the personality of it. Well, you didn't spend a lot of time as a kid standing in front of a camera or anything, did you? No, I, it just it, that wasn't something that was appealing to me. It wasn't a it wasn't a career path I ever thought I would have. So at what point did you sit down and say, OK, well, if I'm going to do it, here's what I'm going to do. And I know that there, there, the, there was an increased appeal in the format for viewers who wanted your perspective on it, on, on the vehicle, much more than this is what it's like to own a Ferrari. It became reviews. To some it became extent. reviews. Yeah, I mean, it, it evolved. There was, there was never like a moment where I was like, okay, I'm going to do this and here's how and here's what. That, that never really happened. It sort of just evolved from the columns. And I've always felt and still feel that I'm a better writer than I am a video creator. But you know, the online world has evolved as we sit here doing a podcast that's also on, you, you know, you see like the, the writing is not as big of a as a priority for for the audience anymore. And so it sort of was like, OK, I have to adapt or die. So that was one sort of evolution. And then things just sort of evolved from there. I, I did a couple of car reviews and realized, oh, these are performing better than my stupid videos where I you know, drive through puddles and pretend like I'm off-roading. Like, okay, maybe I need to start doing even more car reviews. And that evolved and evolved. And that, that's sort of how the channel went. Whenever people ask me for advice, I always tell them to make the videos that your audience wants to see, not the ones that you necessarily want to make. And I think that I'm the best example of that. I, st I, I really based what I did on what people seem to respond to. And it just sort of went in that direction. And you call yourself a modern or maybe the channel, what you're reviewing, modern enthusiast vehicles. What do you mean by modern? Well, the 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 channel, I guess, has sort of evolved into that also. Um, but when we launched Cars and Bids, which was about three years ago, the focus was on what we considered modern cars. So from the 1980s to sort of the present day. And the channel has always kind of focused on those. I have tried to review some cars from the older era as well. 60s, 70s, which cars that actually greatly interest and excite me. But um, I find that the audience just isn't quite there as much. YouTube um, audiences are younger. They tend to max out maybe in their 50s. And those people grew up around cars, kind of the 80s being sort of the oldest things uh, that they're really interested in. And so I've tried to review cars in the 60s and 70s. I even did a Lamborghini Mura review about 18 months ago, and just it just doesn't perform that well. Uh, so I've kind of focused my all my energy on the, you know, the newer cars. Let's go back a little bit. Did you grow up in a car loving family? Not at all. My my father had a when I was born, he had a 1988 Toyota Camry and he replaced that 10 years later with a 1998 Toyota Camry. And he's, replaced, <laughs> he's he's still driving the car he replaced that with, which is a Lexus RX. And so he only had three cars. Version of a Camry. Life. Right. He, he's, <laughs> at some point he got I guess he graduated. So I, they, they, I never, I had no car interest. I have no idea where it came from. I think my family and I are still a little bit dumbfounded about how it all. Happened. Still scratching your head, wondering how a you're in this car business. Yeah, no He's one in my lawyer. <laughs> right, right. I should have gone to law school. <laughs> so when you were starting out and you're trying to decide which vehicles that you're going to put on the newly hatched created channel, how did you decide which vehicles you wanted on there? Initially, when I was reviewing my own cars, I would actually do audience polls and, and whatever one I would buy, I would personally buy the car that my audience 
told me to. And that led to some cars that I didn't really want to buy, including a 1995 Hummer, a full-size AM General Hummer, which yeah. was a horrible car, especially because I lived in, in the center city, Philadelphia at the time. And having a Hummer in Philly is not not really <laughs> the ideal situation. It's not really a city designed for that. But um, but then I just started to evolve to, I, I would just very closely watch what got views. And so if a certain type of car got views, I would say, okay, what made that car desirable? It was an exotic from the old days, or it was a brand new car that people were interested in. And that's sort of how I evolved to figuring out what people wanted to see. And how about now? How are you deciding what vehicles that you review now? And how much time and effort goes into that? It's become kind of a finely tuned process. Like we, we over the years, I've learned so much what people want that it's kind of become pretty clear to me. Like, okay, this is these are the. So now my channel is I, I basically still make two car review videos a week, and then there's some other videos here and there. But the car review videos are now one of them is usually a brand new car that is in high demand, uh, and then the other one is usually a car that we're selling on cars and bids that I think is interesting enough to justify a video with. For example, today we launched a video in an auction of a Celine Ford Explorer. I don't I know if you that. They, they actually Celine in the '90s actually made a version of the Ford Explorer, which is a ridiculous proposition, of course. But that kind of thing. So I'm I'm kind of splitting my time, if you will, between the the new and modern stuff that gets more views, gets more traffic, and earns more revenue. And also the older stuff that brings people to the auction site, which also is, you know, beneficial. YouTube, the YouTube algorithm, you know it better than anybody else. Explain <laughs> to us common folks, although we have a channel as well, but explain to us the 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 secret sauce behind the algorithm. Is it just more content or is it just the content that you think that, that, that people want? Is it, how how complicated is it? I don't know. It's, it's it quite, it's, it's more complicated than I ever thought it would be when I started this. And I've definitely gone through several iterations of algorithm. And I have these massive spreadsheets going back years with all the view counts and all my videos at certain time periods and revenue and all that. And I can, you can tell when there were like changes made. And then you kind of have to either figure that out and adapt or you didn't realize it and you don't adapt. And it it's it was nerve wracking. I mean, for a, for a period of years there, it was my entire life was based on the YouTube algorithm. My entire career, my entire income was based on this thing that I didn't even really fully understand. And so I would do my best to try to understand it. But I remember some dark days where you'd put up a video thinking this is going to do great. And you'd put it up in a prime revenue slot, which is like end of quarter, end of month. And then it doesn't do so great. And you're like, you know, that's a that's a tough hit sometimes. Those were those are some it was just hard. You were fighting against this thing you didn't really know all that well. Are you still fighting against that or do you think you have a better handle on it? To an extent I am, but ultimately Cars and Bids has kind of usurped YouTube in terms of like, I, I do, I'm obviously doing them both to a huge extent, but we took a big investment in both Cars and Bids and my YouTube channel. And that um, has led us to hire some people who are kind of smarter than I am. And so what has happened is we now have some people kind of running the show who are really focused on that stuff. And I've gone more back to like just shooting the videos, which frankly is, is not only what I really enjoy doing, but it's also what I'm most qualified to do. When you really think about it, there's no reason that a YouTube content creator should be like making hiring decisions. And <laughs> I'm not, that's not my domain at all. I, I do car reviews on YouTube. <laughs> so um, so I'm not quite as I'm not quite as like death, deathly focused on the algorithm as I as I once was, but I trust that our people still are. <laughs> Car reviewers wa walk a fine line with their automaker partners, especially with stuff that might not be ready for prime time. I think about the latest episode of the last few months with Vinfast and its yeah. launch, and so and all the reactions that came out over the Vinfast. 
What kind of reaction do you get from car makers? Well, I'm the only, I think that I might be the only, I don't know if this is true, but there, there might be a couple more who I, I pay my own way to all of the press launches. So I, I really don't believe in, I think there's not a great relationship between car makers and, and the journalists in our world. I think there's a lot of, you could call it corruption, but that's probably being dramatic. <laughs> Most of the time, who cares, right? Most of the time, the car reviewers review the car. It's a pretty good car. They say it's a pretty good car. It's fine. There are some times where I think car reviewers should probably be harsher and they are anxious to be harsher because of their relationships with the automakers and their fear that they might not get access to future cars. So um, for years, I bar- I pretty much did the channel entirely based on borrowing cars from dealerships and I didn't use automakers at all. And I would get nasty notes from the PR people and I would just ignore them because I didn't really care. <laughs> <laughs> or I would reply and say, yeah, well, um, then COVID hit and, and going to dealerships became a little less tenable. So I started taking press cards, but I still pay my own way to all the, the press events. Cause I just feel like that's the right thing to do. I think taking money f- or hotel rooms and flights, um, is just not, it's not my world of fair journalism. And so, um, that's how it works. But I, in terms of my relationship with the automakers, the, the truth is despite doing this and despite having taken this holier than thou stance for years about this, cars are actually pretty damn good. And so when you they are. When you, it's it's not like I, it's not like because I take, I don't take their money. It's not like I'm out here saying, well, this car is a piece of crap and everybody else is lying to you. The truth is my reviews often end up being fairly similar to everybody else's because the cars, it's not like in the eighties where you, you never really, some cars were really actually trash and some people maybe weren't saying that and they should have been. Now it's a little easier to have that cozier relationship because nobody's really building bad cars. Exactly. It's hard to identify a vehicle that, yeah. that not you know well put together or the and I think that you mentioned is actually a great example of exactly that because here it's like it's this the the latest crop of car journalists isn't used to bashing cars because they don't right and so it's like this VinFest thing shows up it's like oh my god this thing is like I'm driving a 90s car you know and today it's trash and 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 it's some for some of these people I think it was like their first opportunity to really say okay this is a bad car what about Teslas I mean your access to them Fortunately, I live in California and I have a lot of viewers on my channel. I, I review a lot of electric cars, as you might imagine, because so many new cars are electric. I've seen that, yeah. And so um, I have a lot of viewers who are who are obsessive. And so they, they'll they get me, they'll hook me up, as it were, the moment that it comes out. And so I was the first person, on, I think the first on YouTube to review a Model 3 back in, it was, I mean, that was now five, six years ago. I flew all the way to San Francisco at the time to do it. I was living on the East Coast. Um, and I got a Model Y almost right away. I was quick with Plaid. Um, I, I, I've been able to do that. And, and, um, it really hasn't, hasn't slowed me down at all. I think it would be harder if I was somewhere that was like Tesla desolate, but in California, once the car is out, it gets around pretty fast. You have a unique car rating system on the site called the Doug score appropriately enough. Right. How does the Doug score work? It's a, it's a, there's 10 categories to the Doug score and five of them are weekend categories. So you evaluate how a car performs like in fun duties. And then five of them are daily categories and you, you know, you evaluate how it performs like on a daily basis. And, and inherently thus it is biased a little bit towards performance cars, which is kind of the point of the channel because weekend categories aren't really half of a person's purpose for a car. Right. But, but they're half of the score. And so cars that do really well in the weekend scores kind of get a little bit, a little bit of a benefit, but um, the, the, the purpose, the initial purpose of it was the, uh, I was noticing people weren't watching my videos all the way through. And so I decided I would stick this kind of scoring system at the very end of the videos and kind of make them watch if they wanted to see it. Ah, you're messing with the algorithm again. That's right. And what I learned was that people will watch what they want to watch 
and then still skip the end of the videos, but then skip to the Doug score and watch that. So it worked out to some extent. I guess I got a few, I got an extra minute out of it, but it's all at the end. <laughs> but it it, uh, it was an interesting idea. And, and it has evolved now because I've now reviewed so many cars, but it's probably 800 cars that I've Doug scored. And so now I'm able to really directly compare stuff and, and make like legitimate, here's, this is better, here's why kind of statements in my videos. Back to the automakers, do they ever take you to task for what they perceive as a lower than deserved Doug score? I've never care? had I've never had complaints about the the score specifically. No, I've never had an automaker say, no, this should have been higher, whatever. Um, but you know, I'm you get this probably having worked in your world for a while. Like you sometimes the automakers get upset at some of the stuff you say. Um, and you have to kind of decide how you want to handle that. And sometimes you just I, I've got very little patience for it, truthfully. If it's something, if it's a factual error, that's one thing, but those are rare. Um, if they, if it's an opinion thing, I don't, I, I, I have no qualms about giving the PR people my opinion. And if they don't want to invite me to the next press launch, that means one less trip that I have to go on. That's fine. <laughs> How many vehicles do you think you've reviewed? Uh, it's got to be, I, I, I don't know, 800 maybe, not 1,000, okay. Okay. a ton, a mil, I mean, a lot. We should do a special show based off uh, a round number that you end up reviewing. Yeah, that that is true. That would be. I, I don't know where I am, but it's probably a, a, a quite a few at this point. The, um, the individual reviews that you have on the site consistently rack up more than a million views, Doug. How have you been able to connect with so many people? What is the secret to getting? I don't know. I still don't know. I honestly and truly still don't quite understand exactly why my brand of reviews has gotten so strong over all these these years. I um. It was it was completely organic for for so many years. Um, I never did any paid advertising and stuff until we launched Cars and Bids. And even then, we do paid advertising to get to the site, but not really to the channel. Although it's sort of a roundabout. But anyway, I I, I don't know. I I think that going. I think that one of my big secrets for a long time that I that I still think more people should copy is that I focused less on driving the car and more on the actual experience of the car. And so I really showed people like all the little details. I called them the quirks and features of the cars and showed them, you know, what does this button do and all that. And I'll tell you, in a, in a Lamborghini Countach, that's interesting to people. They know it's fast. They know it's loud. They know how to, you know, they've heard all that stuff. But I think a lot of people are like what the hell is this thing actually like? What do the buttons do? How, where's, is there a glove button? Like people are interested in that stuff. And I think a lot of car journalists sometimes take for granted how many cars they drive and they don't really think about the fact that a lot of people really don't have any clue like really what these cars are like to use and what makes them special and, and what makes them interesting and unique. And so I kind of pursued that, but I still, that's like kind of the only thing I can come up with that so many people were watching and it, it blew me away for a long time. It's authentic. It's it's um, it is not a um, a buff book, as they say in the business, right? It's not it's not done in that way. You're not overly serious. Uh, right. Would be my take on it. And I would say too, Doug, that as technology moves its way into these vehicles, the advent of EVs, the proliferation of electric vehicles, that reviews like that become much more important. How I think does so. this thing work? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Everybody's always said to me, well, what are you going to do when electric cars and self-driving cars start to show up? I actually think it's going to be, I, my stuff specifically is going to be even more entertaining. You know, what, what these electric car companies have started to do 
Tesla has a built-in video game controller. Ford has a, in the Lightning, there's a pad where you can draw. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that cars are going to start implementing, these weird solutions to kind of help you pass the time if your car is able to drive itself or to just distinguish themselves. Because these days, powertrains are no longer as big. Cars are not as distinctive as they once were from, from years past. And so I think automakers are going to start implementing more and more weird stuff as like signatures True. to distinguish themselves. That Ionic 5 has a little magnetic strip on the dashboard where you can put magnets if for God knows what reason you want to do that. And so that kind of little thing is like my bread and butter. And I'm, I am here for all the weird stuff that is coming. And it already, it has started to come. It has started to come. You're right. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with YouTube influencer Doug DeMiro. And to see my interview with Doug, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back into the program. I'm Jason Stein. Now the continuation of my conversation with YouTube influencer, Doug DeMiro. And to watch my interview with Doug, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. Let's talk about the uh, cars and bids uh, and the, um, the inspiration behind that. It's a prominent now online venture, if you will. And why did you do it? Well, the algorithm was actually, I think, my primary impetus. I think any YouTuber who's honest with themselves realizes that someday either they will start to lose traction or they already are. You know, I think that every real YouTuber is sitting there thinking about that. And I think there are some who have their head in, their, in the sand and say that it'll never happen to them, but they're wrong. You know, someday YouTube will replace them with someone else or the medium will replace like TikTok will come and become even bigger than YouTube and that will disrupt. And so over the years, I had really been thinking about that, especially as my audience grew and I couldn't stop thinking, hey, I need to take this audience and do something with them that I have more control of rather than the YouTube algorithm is sort of like running the show behind the scenes. And my whole life is based on this algorithm that I don't understand. And so the, the concept of a car auction site sort of hit me for a lot of reasons. Um, I think it's sort of a lot in, in, in a lot of ways, the future of this business, especially for enthusiast cars. Um, obviously, Bring a Trailer had had enormous success and that played a role. And I also just had this audience that I knew was pretty serious and and a little bit older and a little bit more sophisticated than some of my YouTube colleagues. And I thought that maybe I could bring them into a position of, you know, here's a marketplace where we can buy and sell cars. So what was the goal when it launched? How big did you want it to be? I, we just wanted it not to, to fail right away. You know, we <laughs> launched in June of 20 and it, well, that's not peak COVID, but it was close, right? I mean, there's still stuff was still shut down. Nobody had any clue what the hell was going on. And so we thought it was going to fail. I mean, I, I, nobody knew it was going to happen. The economy was sort of tanking or not tanking, or it had already sort of come back, but no one really knew what the next step was and everybody was scared. And so we really thought failure was going to happen. And then what ended up actually happening was we launched into like the greatest car market in the entire history of the automobile. Yeah, timing was everything on that one. It worked out okay, but you know, and it looks like we're brilliant. It really does. When you look back, oh yeah, you timed that. Well, I didn't, it really didn't seem like that then. But it did work out. And um, 
And I don't know really what I what I hoped for, other than I just hoped it was a place that I could take my audience, uh, and that has seemed like it worked out. And you've sold your car on it too, and and several. I think I've sold four or five of my vehicles. <laughs> yeah. Were you, were you just trying to prove that the site worked? The first car was my own car, and I think it was it wasn't even we were trying to prove that the site worked. I think we were nervous that it wouldn't, and we figured if it was my car, at least it's just me, and I can work on that. But one of my best friends was number two, and then also a friend was car number three and four and five and six, and then suddenly random people started submitting their cars, and the next thing you knew, we had we were we were off. Now it now it's huge. When did you know you had something really big cooking here? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, you must, we, there must have been a moment where you sat there and you said, "Okay, we've." There we've were there were idea. over the over the the two. So we launched it in June of twenty, and we took a big investment to kind of sell the majority of it in the fall of twenty two. And obviously, that moment was one of, was probably the defining one. But before that, there were some hits along the way where it was like, "Okay." Um, I remember early on, there was a bidding war on an E39 BMW M5. And it was like, okay, if we're getting a bidding war, that means there are people here who are interested. And it was back and forth and back and forth. And it was like, wow, okay, that's real. And then at some point early on, we sold a very special BMW, an 850 CSI that was in this one of one purple color. And it got crazy money. I think it set a record for one of those at that time. And that was again, like, okay, we can deliver these results. This is pretty impressive. Because I think for a while there, there were people who were wondering, hey, is this really going to be able to go up against the Ebays, the Bring a Trailers, or, you know, the Meekums and whatever? Like, why would I use this idiot's website? And, and it was <laughs> things like that. It was things like that that really proved to not only me, but like to the world, mm, maybe I really ought to give this a second look because I think they're, I think they're actually doing pretty well. Your thirty, the the investment that you or the sale that you uh, referenced, thirty seven million dollars. Where was that? Where's that money earmarked for? What are you doing with it? We're just buying more cars. Expansion is obviously like the biggest. We, we've hired a big team of of uh, of people to go around and, and help us try to grow this thing. We really see a real, real large, serious future in this business. Um, and you know, it's been interesting because as we've grown, so too have the other bringer trailers, the Ebays, et cetera, and all of the online auto platforms. And I think that like we're growing, but the space is growing also. I think that this is, everybody's seeing that this is sort of a future of how to sell particularly enthusiast, you know, special enthusiast cars. It's funny. We've had uh, Randy on the program as well from, uh, bring a trailer. And it, it's interesting to me where all these things start, they just start as an idea. You know, it was Randy's idea of trying to you know, do a, a better sale process. It's your right. idea. What do I do with the audience and this, you know, darn algorithm? <laughs> right. I mean, Randy, I mean, it was it was a great idea. And I think, you know, for us, we're, we're thankful to bring a trailer in a, in a lot of ways because they kind of paved the way of, hey, this is a thing that can happen. Um, Randy sort of launched this thing and it was just like, I don't even know if it's going to work. I'm sure he had much more anxiety in the, his early days than we did because at least we had some proof that this is a real thing. Um but it, it was anxiety provoking, I'm sure, for both of us. And it, and it seems like it's worked. The funny thing is that a lot of other competitors have popped up. And I think they think it's easy because Bring a Trailer succeeded. And then this guy with his stupid T-shirt and shorts who's on, you know, reviewing cars on YouTube, he's succeeded. So a lot of people are like, oh, if they can do it, anybody can do it. And um, my my advice to them is just try. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Was it difficult to give up ultimate decision-making responsibility? I mean, you now have a CEO in yeah. Ro Choi uh, Ro, yeah. and uh, TCG owns a majority stake in the company now. How yeah. much, how difficult was that to, to give some of that stuff up? 
not as difficult as you think. I I've been it's it had been 10 years of my life since launching the channel. That was seven years, and then launching the cars and bids in 20, and then we did that for another three years while simultaneously running the channel. And I just I honestly I I was ready for some adults in the room to help make decisions in a way that maybe they we had grown to a business that was large enough that someone needed someone who was a little bit more legit than I was needed to come in and maybe make some some decisions. And so Roe is like a professional CEO. He ran Ease before this, um, the the pot distribution company. And um TCG obviously has the the churning group who invested in us has an enormous experience amount of experience in a lot of different businesses like Meat Eater and Barstool and all that. And um it was nice to have someone come in and say, look, you've done an amazing thing. Let's all, do, let's all take this forward, you know, now. Um, and I, I think I kind of needed that. I, I'm, I'm not that type of guy. <laughs> Recognizing what you're good at, right? Again, I think Doug. so. I'm a big fan of specialization and I'm good at filming car videos and I'm not necessarily good at making hiring decisions and, and, you know, <laughs> building a business and business strategy. Spreadsheets. That's not where I live. Right. Although you did spreadsheets. Yeah. Um, some interesting people who've used the site to buy or sell a vehicle. Do you have any good stories? Uh, a lot of car people have used the site, like the Matt Farah's and the Hoovies garages. And we've had a lot, a lot of, cause I'm friends with a lot of those guys. And so when they want to sell, you know, Stradman sold his Z06, which was a big controversy because he was flipping in and all this. Um, but I can't think of any really, you know, we've had some cars that were previously owned by so-and-so. Um, but otherwise it's just mostly kind of been some fun, you know, some of our car YouTuber pals doing it basically. So change does not happen overnight. What can we, what can regular visitors to cars and bids expect to see, um, maybe in the next year or two on the site, how will things change? I think the goal is to make it a, a business that's a little bit, I think the goal is to eliminate friction and make the process easier. And, and when we launched, um, that was one of the things that we realized was kind of lacking in all of the other car selling uh, platforms. When we launched, no one was offering Carfax reports with their cars. Bring a trailer didn't have it. eBay, you could get an auto check, you had to pay. We included them. We included uh, vehicle history reports free for in in all of our cars, all of our listings from day one. And and initially it was auto check, and we upgraded to Carfax. Um, and that was a, that was a thing that made made it easier and we just added inspections so sellers can get their cars inspected which i think which it would buy a lemon squad which is like a pre-purchase inspection company and that's made it easier and i think our goal going forward is to continue to help reduce kind of reduce the friction that can naturally come in the car buying process because there's a lot of different pain points along the way and i think we want to make it easier and obviously to just keep growing and keep having a great selection of crazy stuff we want to make sure there's always something for everyone at all times you know on the site how are you going to manage your time between the YouTube channel and cars and bids? I'm fortunate in now we have something like 35 employees or 30 or I, no one wow. it's hard to keep track, but it's growing very fast. And so I'm kind of just relegated to the, to the content side of things. But like I've been saying, that's kind of the place where I seem like I belong. So I think it's keep you over there, right? That, right. Now don't I even think, worry about this. I think the people in the business side of things are thrilled about that. They're like, let's get this crazy guy out of the, <laughs> let's have some real people running this thing and take your t-shirt so, and leave. <laughs> right. Take your t-shirt and shorts and get back behind, behind the camera. So, or in front of it. And so I, um, I mean, I think I'll be doing more content. Um, but I think I'll be doing maybe a little bit less like day-to-day -day management of the, of the auction business as it were. This show is cars and culture. Uh, let's talk culture about online, everything. How much has YouTube changed 
culture in your mind? And you've been right there from the beginning. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, <laughs> well, on a personal level, YouTube has changed my life and given me a world that I never thought I would ever have and a reach that I never thought I would ever have. And actually, it's interesting because, you know, you're talking about your background in, in automotive news and auto week, like the the traditional media publications, there was a there was sort of a hierarchy of how you worked your way up to first you're doing getting people donuts and coffee, right? And then you're then you're reviewing cars, maybe, and then you're going on trips, maybe, and then you're an editor. And, and um, YouTube kind of democratized the ability to do all that stuff. And I, by the time I was 28, I was like a respected car reviewer somehow on the internet. And I think that that has been an amazing influence of YouTube is that popularity dictates more than almost anything else. And it certainly isn't like quality of production because God knows I, I, production quality is not high. But I think like if you just, <laughs> there was an ability to kind of be just a little bit more direct to the people that that wasn't available to to creators before that. Now, from a from the perspective of the audience, I mean, it's an, un, the, the, the influence of YouTube is unbelievable. I, um, I, every single day, someone comes up to me to talk about my stuff, or I hear other things. You know, YouTube DIY videos has like changed everybody's lives. Um, God, you yeah. find anything on YouTube, music and music videos, and I, it's it's incredible. I it, the story of the last fifteen years, I think, will will probably be the story of YouTube, kind of in in, in concert in terms of our culture. Wow. And you know, you think about it. You can learn to play a musical instrument right. on YouTube. You can change a light bulb. <laughs> the house I'm sitting in, I bought from an 83 year old woman. When she found out what I did for a living, she was so excited because she loved to use YouTube to do DIY projects in the house. She, this this woman who was like depression era woman, is like here doing doing projects on on from YouTube videos like everybody else. Like it's 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 changed. It's it's so so impactful. Well, and let me tell you just a personal story. My 18-year-old son and his 20-year-old uh, friends, when they found out that I'm talking to YouTube influencer, Doug went just about bananas. So, <laughs> and 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 what's funny about that is that you know you're when I grew up, when you grew up, I mean, you know, network TV was something, and and you you know you were a TV star, and now for that generation, it's well, he's a YouTuber, she's a YouTuber. It's Emily Hartford's been on this program. It's right. And and another great example of this exact thing when it's funny, because when I started doing this and I started becoming popular, the first time someone ever recognized me on the street was in 2015. And people would say that I was Internet famous. That was a big term for a while. And that that's changed. People don't say that anymore. There's no qualifier anymore. Not that I would consider myself famous, but but certainly every almost every person who is well known now has some tie to the internet. It's not just like, oh, I know them from, yeah, like friends. It's not like seeing Jennifer Aniston. That that almost doesn't exist anymore because media has become so fractured, right? Like you, some people watch on Netflix, Hulu, et cetera. Some people still watch network TV. Some people only watch YouTube. And, and so as a result, it's kind of a weird, like, no, everyone who is a celebrity has their own weird niche of celebrity, but it, it, people don't draw the distinction as much anymore. It's not said with such derision as it once was. I used to have friends make so much fun of me for being a YouTuber early on in my days. And I think that that's not happening anymore. I think people get it now. Now you're right. Uh, an, another uh, personal anecdote. We interviewed Jay Leno on this program and there was one clip pulled out of a 45 minute interview where I asked him a question about not owning a Ferrari. Yep. And that clip, I've seen it. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, there we go. Absolutely. <laughs> and I was a pro- I was uh, I walked into a Ferrari dealership and somebody said, "Aren't you the guy who asked Jay Leno about not owning a Ferrari?" Which they didn't like very much, by the way. But um, but isn't that funny? One thing that's pulled out and has right. been watched, I don't know, five or six million times. Right. It, right. it it really changes the whole scope of of what media really means. Yeah, I absolutely. That's exactly that's exactly right. It changes it both for the for the creator and for the audience of like where media is. And I remember early on, I I couldn't get the automakers to return my calls. When I talked to them about one of the main reasons I started using dealerships was because when I talked to them about using, reviewing cars for a YouTube channel, they they wouldn't even reply to my emails. It was like they they thought I was kidding. They thought I was a joke. And um they don't think that anymore. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. Let's talk about a couple of other things that you've done. Uh, your book, Bumper to Bumper, you say is the finest book ever written. <laughs> yeah, God, <laughs> it's been years since I, I was, you know, I always felt I was a better writer than I was a content, was a video or like I said. And so I tried to write some books early on in the world where ebooks were still like a really hot thing. Maybe they still are. I don't know. Um, and, and they did okay. I guess they were fun. They were really fun to do, but um you know, it's a lot more time consuming. And then the world just sort of pivoted to video. Yeah. Well, you've also, you also wrote a book, uh, Plays with Cars. Mm-hmm. You bring a lot of humor into your writing. Does yeah. fun find you, or are you just lucky to have had some really interesting experiences in the auto industry? That's a good question. <laughs> I never really thought about that. I think back in the day, I, I used to do more stupid, like I, I would just do things that I got lucky right out of college. I had some good jobs. I worked for Porsche, but I was also writing for autotrader.com. And so I was making some good money, kind of moonlighting, doing two things. And so I kind of started to do some stupid, a 19 year old or 22 year old who's interested in cars and has money is a terribly bad. It's a horrible (laughs) situation. And at the time I was living in Georgia, which didn't tax private sales of cars. And so you could really buy cars and just kind of screw around with them, pay no sales tax and then move on. And so I did a lot of dumb stuff and and not <laughs> super dumb, but I bought a Lotus Elise in California and drove it back to Georgia where I was living. And you could get away with, you know, when you're 23, you can get away with doing stupid stuff like that. And so I, there were a lot of fun excursions over those years. Share a couple of outrageous or funny things that happened to you in the world of cars. Well, that story, that trip was probably the most crazy that buying the Lotus and driving it across the country because I, I was the middle of July when I did this in 2012, maybe. And it didn't have air con. It didn't. It turned out the air conditioning wasn't working. The previous owner either lied to me about it or he didn't know. I mean, he lived in the bay, so he didn't use the AC all that often. But I discovered it early on in July when I drove the car back to Georgia, and I'm in the de- the desert, driving through the desert, and there's no AC. And uh, I had to pull over. I had to stop at rest stops just to get water so I could pour it on my. I mean, it was so awful driving through the middle of the country in July in that car. Um, but there was the time where I went up to the tail of the dragon, that famous road in like East Tennessee, North Carolina, and I got pulled over by like Indian tribal police. And we tried to run from them on a pontoon boat. There were so many stupid things. You know, I have a kid now I'm like 30, I have a child and like property and I don't, I would never do anything like this, (laughs) (laughs) but there was a period, you know, you're married. Uh, is your wife involved in the business? No, not at all. She's not, she's not part of the car world at all. All right. No interest. No interest. And it's best to just, you know, leave her to her own devices. <laughs> um, let's talk about favorite cars. Uh, uh, what are some things that you've driven either lately or in the past that you that really stick out? And I've been driving, uh, you know, press vehicles for the better part of 20 to 25 years. It's hard, I know, to come up with 
a few that really stand out, but there have to be some for you. Maybe it's a Bugatti Chiron or something. My, my favorite car of all time is the, the you know, 2004, 2005 Porsche Carrera GT, which of course the famous V10 Carrera GT that Paul Walker was in when he was killed and all that. Um, and I love that car more than anything in the world. And I, I was lucky enough to buy one maybe six, seven months ago. Um, and that that has been my favorite car since I was a kid. And it was really lucky because when I actually was able to drive one for the YouTube channel, it turned out that it was actually my favorite car. Also, you know, getting behind the wheel and using it, it was still just as lovely as I had hoped. Um, so I love that car. Um, although what I really wanted was an F40, uh, but they have gotten too expensive. And I think that, that, that those are for now the it's a different market segment than I can ever be in, I suspect. Um, in terms of cars that I've driven recently, I am actually a huge, huge fan of normal cars, cars in the thirty dollars to $60,000 range, just sort of regular every day. But um, one car that I've loved that I've driven recently that isn't in that price range at all is the Huracan Storado, the four-wheel drive off-road version of the Lamborghini Huracan. I'm not <laughs> usually like a new supercar guy. I think a lot of new supercars are kind of gauche and over the top and just silly and stupid, but this one is just gauche over the top, silly and stupid in the most perfect way. And I just think it's one of the stupidest cars ever. And I went to that press launch. It was in the desert in California and they let us drive it off road. And I, I was just smitten with that car. I love it. <laughs> wow. Amazing. What's, what's coming out that you're looking forward to? Um, you know, I, I the new Mercedes E-Class, cause I've had five and I have my 2022 model. So I guess I'll probably end up with the next generation one. I've got um, one too. <laughs> it, they're, they're nice. Great, they're great vehicles. They really are. I, I hate to admit that because it's such a boring, like suburban mock, you know, like, but I just, this, I'm literally, I'm looking at my 22. I have a station wagon one and it's just a great, I just drove it across the country. It's a great car. It's great for everything. And so I've gotten to the point in my life, I guess, where that's the kind of thing I'm looking forward to, like <laughs> getting on the E-class wagon. Can the next sedan. The <laughs> right. And <laughs> see how I can do are you, uh, so when it comes to the exotics, what do you, what do you like? I mean, if, if, if you were to say, okay, well, let's, I'm going to go ahead and get an exotic and here's the one that I want. Maybe it's the one you have now. I need the career GT. I also have a 2005 Ford GT, which is, which is one has for a long time been one of my very favorite cars. I think that car is super underrated. Um, I bought that car from a fellow car journalist, actually Carl Brower, uh, in Southern California. I bought his car and uh, five years ago, I paid him $225,000, which at the time was the most I had ever spent on anything. And I thought I was radically overpaying and the values have gone way up on those. So I guess I was doing okay, but I pretty much daily drive that car. Uh, I just hit 41,000 miles and I'd love, love, love that car. Um, and I, I don't know what else I'm, I'm thinking of. I, I always kind of have an idea of getting another one more car, but I'm not really sure what it's, what it's going to be at the moment. So when you think about one day, uh, if a brand or a car is going to take over the world, is going to become the next big thing, which car will it be? <laughs> that's a good question i mean it, it, two years ago i would have said tesla but i don't really feel that way anymore Why not? Um, well i just think that a lot of the innovations that they had that were so special and so amazing and so at the forefront and so ahead of everything have kind of been either caught up to by other automakers and equaled or surpassed in some cases in fact in most cases um, and I don't really think that Tesla has the great advantage that it once did. And then there's the Elon Musk situation where he used to be this incredible genius who a lot of people really respected. And now we're, we're not really quite as sure after the whole Twitter situation. And so um, I think that that brand has lost some of its luster, although I still believe the cars are fantastic. I, I also believe that a lot of the other automakers are, are close 
or or even even better. But I'm not really sure. To be honest, if I were to answer that question, I would say something like Rivian. But I don't think that Rivian itself will take over anything because it sounds like they're in dire straits. But the concept of a off a vehicle that can off-road better than a Bronco and out-accelerate a 911 and carry as many people as and stuff as a Suburban is like, this is the future. This is the next age we're in now where you don't really have to make compromises in a car. And I think that that is quite an impressive thing. And I think Rivian has combined that stuff better than anybody else. Do you like electric vehicles? Yeah, I, I think a lot of them are awesome. I don't own one yet, but I I at some point I need to jump on that train. I do every every summer I drive across the country and that makes owning an electric vehicle hard. And so I got to figure all that out. <laughs> so it's more about range anxiety than it is anything else. But it's not even anxiety. I do I drive from <laughs> San Diego to East Tennessee in 2 days. For and and yeah, that'd I, be hard to do. It would be hard to do in an electric car. <laughs> it would be really hard. You have been uh, an enormous blast to have on this program uh, because you are equally, Doug, uh, cars and culture. And <laughs> you sit right at the nexus of everything that that we're trying to do here. We don't have billions of views on the program yet, but who knows? Your appearance might help that. Thank you for being on Cars and Culture. I, I very it. much appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to my guest today, YouTube influencer Doug DeMiro. And to see my interview with Doug, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. And thanks for listening to the show. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein. We'll see you down the road.